We are continuing, not for too much longer, but we're continuing in our study through 1st and 2nd Samuel, Lessons from the Kingdom for today. And here at the end of this study, getting close to it, uh, we come to this first of two Psalms of David that the author of this record includes for us. Interestingly, chapter 22, where we are this morning, uh, it's almost a word-for-word -word mirror of Psalm chapter 18 with some minor variations. A psalm possibly that was written many years before this point chronologically. So David, <clears throat> excuse me, he's likely recalling it and reciting it again here in this latter season of his life, remembering God's faithfulness and goodness. And I'm sure that wasn't terribly uncommon uh, for David to revisit psalms that he'd written. These, these were, after all, in a sense, the, uh, the hymn book of the nation of Israel, or they would become that, and they were for David personally. Uh, no doubt he would reflect on and sing on them, just like we do, a, a perhaps a favorite song or hymn or something like that that we... Uh, either sing personally in our own time with the Lord or here on Sunday mornings. We don't sing a song just once. We recall it. And so David is quite possibly as well here. Uh, this, we would assume, took place, though, in the palace. And uh, for us, it is recorded. And so in looking at chapter 22, verses 1 through 51, our message is titled, Seek and You Will Find. And I want to remind you that the outline for our message. It's available as you come in at the table by the wall or out at the connection table as well by the coffee and donuts. Well, that phrase from which we're taking our title, seek and you will find, it comes from a teaching of Jesus's that was offered on the subject of prayer, as many of you know. He, he's instructing his disciples how to pray and to do so by asking, seeking, and knocking. Jesus, he tells us that when we do this, when we practice persistent believing prayer, we can be assured that our Father who is in heaven will give us those good things in which we are or of which we are in need. He'll supply those needs when we place him first in our lives, when we seek him first. David is a man who's done that. Now, we know David's not perfect. We don't have to belabor that point. We understand that he's failed, he's fallen, um, and we'll touch on that a little bit as we move uh, deeper into the psalm. But he's also a man who desperately clung to the Lord, and I hope you've seen that. David was a man after God's heart. He sought the Lord before all else, and as such, David found and experienced God's faithful provision, materially, but far more importantly, spiritually. We'll explore that provision through this morning's psalm. So we'll begin by looking first by way of introduction at verse 1, but let's pause and pray here a moment before we do. Father, as we open your word, we're asking God that you would speak. Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you reveal to us those things that we need to know. Lord, would you help us to understand a little bit better, maybe some things we already have a decent grasp of, but we could stand to, uh, to, to, to 
grasp a little more tightly. Lord, if there's areas where we are away from you, would you show us that? Lord, gently by your spirit. We pray that you'd speak and do good things, and we ask, Lord, that you would do that with our kids as well on the other side of the building. Would you minister to them, Lord? Bless them, disciple them. Lord, cover them, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, we read, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. On the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, from the hand of Saul. And so right away we understand that this was a, a psalm worship in which David was reflecting back on God's faithfulness of dealing with his enemies. And David is careful to separate Saul from that group. We know that even though Saul viewed David as his enemy, David refused to view Saul in that way. He continued to see him as both his king and even friend, though he did need God's deliverance from him nonetheless. Maybe you can relate to someone in your life that, that in the strict sense is not your enemy, but from whom you need deliverance. Well, hopefully you're not sitting next to them. Anyway, Psalm 37, verse 25, David, Drawing on this psalm of victory, Psalm 18, that we're looking at in chapter 22 again, this psalm of victory and God's faithfulness over his life, it reminds me of words that were written from him in another psalm, 37 verse 25. He writes, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. These words testify, 37 speaks of of. David's testifying of God's faithfulness in this chapter, in this psalm, testifying of God's goodness, his power, and his ability to deliver because he'd seen it again and again. And when we walk by faith and obedience to the word of God, we will see God's deliverance and his hand of goodness over our lives as well. And that's a, that's a point I hope we all take with us this morning, that what we're reading as David's experience is to be yours and mine as well. It's to be the natural outflow, the, the, the natural uh, experience of the child of God who is in fact seeking the Lord, knowing that when we do so, he will be found. This, uh, the one passage that I think captures this most poignantly for me what has become in my life sort of a, a life verse is Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 34. 33 is the one I really grab hold of, but I, I'd like to read it in context. Therefore, Jesus tells us, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear or whatever the anxieties and the worries are in your mind and heart. You impose them on this. For after all these things the Gentiles seek, Jesus is saying that the world, they put that first before me, before seeking God. And, and very often they are legitimate things to be worried and concerned about. No one would minimize eating and, and drinking and, and you know, where am I going to stay? Where am I going to live? That's important. God cares about it. He doesn't want us to be obsessed with it before him. But seek first, excuse me, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. 
Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Isn't that the truth? When we do what Jesus instructed us to do, and I think what we find modeled in the life of David, an imperfect man, but a man who loved God and sought him first, we too will experience God's provision and blessing in and over our lives. That doesn't mean that we're not going to experience problems. We didn't say that. We don't see that in David's life or in the verses we're looking at today. But it does assure his presence and, and blessing. And this morning, we're going to look at these 51 verses. First of all, we're taking this in, in survey fashion. We're approaching this passage sort of devotionally, so we're not going to dig deeply into each verse. But we're going to break it up into four sections. We're going to find these characteristics of God that David is praising him for, that David found to be true, that, that he is the God who hears, that our God is, is he who forgives, that he's the God who strengthens, and that he's the God who delivers. And so we'll begin with the God who hears, verses 1 through 7. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. When the ways of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol, uh, that's a word for, uh, for uh, hell, place of torment, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. David's describing God in these verses as a fortress, a rock, a place of strength and protection in the midst of great dangers and peril. And then he states or sings in verse 1, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The question is, a question to consider for you and I, is what do we do when we're overwhelmed by our, our circumstances, by our enemy? Most of us have not and will not encounter in life a literal enemy in the sense that David is describing. But we will face opposition. We will face trials, circumstances, relationships, need and, and, and lack, suffering that threatens to overwhelm us to the point of us wanting to give up, quite frankly, to the point of us despairing and, and struggling to trust and believe God. Do we try to fix our problems ourselves? Do, do we try to make our problems go away? Are we guilty of leaning on the arm of the flesh through maybe distractions, entertainment, behaviors that are unhealthy, maybe even harmful or addictive. Things that numb our problems, but only for a short while. And, and, and some of us, our means of dealing might not be in those categories. It, it might be in the sense of simply 
engaging with all of our energies and strength and know-how on our own, apart from God, which is just as dangerous as the others. Crying out to God in prayer is the only way that you and I can actually deal with these needs rather than run from them and be assured that there'll actually be a resolution, an answer. We struggle with that, I think, because prayer does not always, I think for most of us, the majority of the time, the answer, it, it comes in and through a season of waiting, doesn't it? You're, you're in the midst of a conflict, you're in the midst of some, some pain, some valley, some suffering, and to pray is almost to enter into a deeper level of suffering. Do you understand what I mean by that? Because you're now being stretched in faith to believe that it's gonna be okay, even though by all practical uh, signs that you can observe, it is not okay, and okay is nowhere near. And yet you're trusting in God and believing that it's going to be. You're allowing the pain to continue, trusting it into God's hands. But that's the path and the place from which Real answers and solutions, deliverance actually comes because now you're coming before the one who hears, the one who's listening. And because he hears, he will act and he will respond. That is a part of who our God is. In verse 7, we read, David says, he heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. We could say that God's hearing necessitates his action. When we pray, God listens and he responds. Not always according to our timeline. <laughs> maybe, we, maybe we could say always not according to our timeline, unless we just happen to accidentally get it right. But more often than not, we're waiting. But he is listening and he will act. Our job is to pray and to trust him with the answer. In Matthew chapter 7, the passage from which our message, uh, from which we get the title for our message, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door, it will be opened. James chapter 4, verse 2, James challenges us. You have not because you ask not. And I think for some of us, that's our real experience because we are more inclined to suffer, to wrestle, to angst, to try to handle it ourselves rather than do what I believe is the harder thing, walking the path of faith and trusting it into God's hands. Because we're leaning on the arm of the flesh, we're not receiving the answer, the deliverance that we need. God wants us to enter into that place of faith that we might see him work. He is listening. He wants to act and move. And now David's going to spend some time illustrating his understanding of God's response to this cry for help. And, and here, he's especially poetic. David is a poet. We should know that. If you've not read the Psalms, you should read the Psalms, all right? And there you'll see his, his, his worshipful expressions that uh, take on and, and are, are found and breathed out through, through poetry. We've been spending our time in First and Second Samuel looking at, at literal historical account 
But now we're, we're moving into Hebrew poetry here in this one chapter in the beginning of the next. On Wednesday nights, we've been studying Hebrew poetry, the book of Job. It's different from our poet, you know, we're not doing one fish, two fish in this, all right? That's not what we mean when we say poetry. It's, it's different and we're not going to go into detail on that, but join us on Wednesdays and you can understand that a little bit better. But verse eight, David gives this description of his understanding and interpretation of God acting on his behalf. It says, then the earth shook and trembled, the foundations of the heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the most high uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. It's a pretty dramatic scene, what's being, what's being described here. It's a strong response on God's part to David's distress and need, be, be it symbolic or literal and I think it's it's healthy for us to digest this picture that David draws for us David whose very life was literally in danger surrounded by enemies darkness and and death he cries out in desperation to his God and let's not forget that though David's description is figurative his personal trial and need is most definitely and certainly literal like a child crying out to his parent for help. And God leaves no room for doubt as to his concern. He is aroused to action. The, the picture that David uses to illustrate uh, the urgency with which he perceives God to have responded with, it conjures images that depict God as, as angry and upset over what his son is enduring. So much so that he's arisen from his throne and is coming to his defense causing the very heavens to be rent that he might step through and minister on behalf of his child with, with angels in tow. Heaven is coming to David's defense. That's what's being expressed here. Creation is reacting violently to the approach of the creator. And what's the result? Verse 15, he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. God, he's answering the prayer of his child. God was moving in power on David's behalf. God cares about this way for you and I as well. And I think it's important for us to hear that because we can read the Psalms. We can take in a passage like this and think, well, that was King David. You know, he, he's, he's David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Of course, God responded this way to him. You are no less a child of God than was David. God hears your prayers, and you can, you can seek God and cry out to him with the same confidence that David had. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, a passage from the New Testament that I think captures this idea well. 
What then shall we say to this th these things, all the truth that, that Paul has loaded prior to this in, in the book of Romans? He then says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. If God is on your side, who can be against you? We all know what it's like to be overwhelmed in our hearts, don't we? How is this ever going to get resolved? How is this situation that just seems so impossible, so overwhelming, ever going to get fixed? God, I just, Scripture says if God's for us, who can be against us? We need to, we need to speak these words to our, our hearts. Remember David elsewhere in the Psalms, he writes, Soul, why art thou disquieted within me? Sometimes we have to do battle in that way in our hearts and minds, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and, and declaring God's truth over it. If God is for me, who can be against me? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? God didn't spare his own son, Jesus Christ. Do we... Do we? We do. Why do we believe that God isn't going to or isn't able to work in the situation that we've determined is somehow impossible? Knowing that our God hears and that his hearing moves him to act, it, it should inform how you and I pray. It should stir in us an expectancy. It should grow our faith. But let's move on to verses 17 through 28. And our next point, the God who forgives. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. David, he's drowning. God lifted him up. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty, that you may bring them down. Now, Having read verses 17 through 28, some of you might be scratching your heads wondering, why did you title this section of verses, The God Who Forgives? Because if I understood a lot of what David just said there, he doesn't even need forgiveness. Were, were we all paying attention? I don't know if you had coffee before you started first. It's first service, it's early. But there was a whole lot there about, you know, my righteousness and my, and I, Lord, I've never deviated from your ways. And we're going, wait, David, David, right? David, the king of, I remember one, or I remember one for sure. And I'm pretty sure we would call that deviation from God. Yes, yes, it's there. But that's the point. That's the point. We'll come back to it in a minute. Now, a lot of Bible scholars use these verses in part to date the writing of this psalm what was happening and when in David's life. And many look at this and say, David's talking about his righteousness and right living way too much. Couldn't have happened after Bathsheba. There's no way. 
So it had to be before that, but clearly it's after Saul was defeated, along with all of David's other enemies. But then we kind of go, eh, there were other enemies after Saul, so it's possible he did write it all the way at the very end. Maybe not. Could have been earlier. But I think it's interesting that if David did write it before his sin with Bathsheba, and now he's reciting it again at the end of his life, why is he not altering it? If his concept and perception of being righteous before the Lord is based on him never having sinned, at least in his mind, why is he repeating it again at the end of his life, clearly after major sin? If I made that confusing, I'm sorry. But the point is, whether he wrote it earlier or before his sin with Bathsheba doesn't really matter because now it's at the end of his life when he's repeating it, and we know that's happened already. And yet he's still describing himself before the Lord in this way. Why would that be? David begins celebrating how God had come to his aid in the prior verse, in verse 17. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He'd rescued me like a drowning man, David writes. He was that desperate. He'd... God had come into this desperation in David's life. In verse 20, he writes, He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Although David's world was falling apart, God fought for him and led him from that place of fear, attack, and defeat to one of blessing and abundance, total victory. But verse 20 says that it was because God delighted in David. And, and then David takes that concept further. Verse 21, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. Verse 22, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. Verse 24, I was also blameless before him. Verse 25, therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness. So that's interesting. Does David have his own righteousness and goodness to thank for God rushing to his aid. Do you ever feel like you really can't go to the Lord for help when, when your, your record before God has not exactly been stellar in recent history? Anybody ever feel that way? I'm guessing all of us do. When you blow it, it's like, man, I can't go to God. We feel like we have to kind of hold our head down. Why, why is Pastor Aaron laughing? Pastor Aaron's laughing because uh, Pastor Aaron messes up on a regular basis, and yet he still has to get up and stand before God's people and declare God's truth. And, and there's something in that, more so in, in the scripture that we're looking at, that should be all of our experience. I don't believe the message here is that David is standing in his righteousness, in his good works in his ability to do right. I think David's being honest before the Lord about his heart to please him and his efforts to walk in his ways, which he did desire to do. But David knew that he'd failed. And even if this was, you know, again, talking about all the possible chronology and timeline of when it was written, we're still dealing with a man who's at the end of his life who knows that he's failed. David can't relate to God based on his righteousness any more than you and I can. 
Any righteousness that we possess is a gift. It was imputed or gifted to us through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 speaks to this. But what things were gained to me? Paul actually has just given his resume to the Philippians. All of his righteousness in terms of adherence to the law. Paul was a Pharisee. He, he belonged to a sect of Judaism that was more committed to the law than we can even imagine. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And listen to what Paul says, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith. Do you know that you can approach God? You can serve the Lord, you can seek the Lord, you can stand before the Lord, fully aware of how you have failed, but also recognizing that you've received by faith as a gift the righteousness of Christ, and that is how the Father sees you. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, whether you realize it or not, that is true of your life. When God the Father looks at you, he sees you through the finished work of the cross. He sees you through his son, Jesus Christ. It's the same way that Abraham was justified and seen to be righteous by God, which David knew and understood. Genesis 15, 6, and he believed in the Lord, and he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. Ultimately, Abraham believed that God would miraculously provide through him a son who would bless every family on earth, including his own. David understood this. At least the parts from Genesis, he didn't have full understanding of the gospel as we do. But the basics were in place. He knew that God prized faith in his working and promises. We've referenced it a few times, but remember what happened? We've talked a few times about David's big fall, right? David's sin with Bathsheba, which for most of us would disqualify and, and, and disable David from saying most of what he said in this chapter, in our mindset. Remember what happened when David was finally confronted about his sin with Bathsheba? 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David's sin was put away, and he knew it. Do you know that your sin has been put away? Here's the point I'm taking a while to get to here. David wrote about his righteousness confidently, even though he failed dramatically because he knew that he was forgiven. And he also knew that God translated faith in his promises into righteousness. And David clung to God and his word. And you and I may well understand these particular verses in chapter 22 as an Old Testament expression of the grace of God. The idea of our being righteous in Christ. 
having on and over our very lives his righteousness. It's very clear in the New Testament. Perhaps most strikingly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we read there, For he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin so that we might become righteousness. If that passage does not drag you out of a a legalism-based understanding of righteousness into a place of grace, I don't know what will. The, the, The great exchange that took place on the cross was your sin for his righteousness. Your sins are not only forgiven, but into your bank account that wasn't just empty, but but was at a deficit to infinity, God then gifted to you the righteousness, the wealth of his son, Jesus Christ. That, I think, is some of what's being expressed by David. So after having reflected on how God both hears and forgives, David now focuses on and worships the God who strengthens. Verse 29, for you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. For by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord is, the word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord and who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. And they have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. In verse 15, excuse me, in these 15 verses, 29 through 43, David, he moves from speaking of how God has acted on his behalf to to fight for him, to bring about his personal deliverance, to how in that he's also strengthened him personally. Ever feel overwhelmed, weak, like I just can't keep moving forward? It's just too much. David was there. David lived there at times. But he found that his God was able to strengthen him. God's able to do that for you and I. When we feel overwhelmed by our enemies, by our circumstances, could I also say and insert here, by our sin and our failure? God, He wants to strengthen us according to His grace. Through through the work his son has already accomplished on our behalf. God not only contended with those who opposed David, but came alongside of he himself. Encouraging, ministering to him, 
bolstering his strength. David testified of this in verse 30. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. Verse 33, God is my strength and power. 34, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. 35, he teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Verse 38, I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. David knows it's God who's given him these victories and blessed him such that, that his enemies are defeated. Verse 40, for you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued me, subdued under me those who rose against me. It's God who fought for and strengthened him. Did David have a measure of his own strength? Sure, we all do, right? I mean, we're able to do some things on our own, right? Some of us, the more capable, can do a lot. But a lot of problems, major problems, arise when we attempt to rely on that. What the Bible calls the arm of the flesh. Our resources and abilities. In fact, it's a dangerous place when, when we've got a fair amount of resources, gifts, skills. Because it's easy to lean into that, isn't it? When the Lord wants us to trust in him. Like David, we, we have to look, we have to have the discipline to trust in God to strengthen us. And not to try to go it alone. That's a dangerous territory. It's, it's one that Satan, he will quickly identify and exploit in our lives. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God's given us a spirit of strength. Further, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, and, and I hope this ministers to you in particular if you find yourself in a place where you need strength. And the source of the strength does not seem available or accessible. Maybe it feels like you have been pressing forward and try, you're just being drugged along by circumstances. Or you're under them. Overwhelmed. Paul said in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations for Paul, it's not always true for each of us why this takes place, but for him... God had done some pretty powerful things in his life. And God cared about Paul more than he cared about what he could do through Paul. And, and so he wanted to make sure and preserve this saint. And so we read here, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. God allowed pain. He, he allowed lack suffering into Paul's life. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so regardless of why the weakness, the pain, the suffering has come into your life, we understand Paul's specific background. Regardless of why it's happening in your life, this truth remains. God's grace is sufficient for you and I. God's grace that's experienced when in our desperation we cry out to him as David did. Where we experience his forgiveness and his grace. 
where he then strengthens us. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, I don't know that I'm here with Paul yet, this boasting and most gladly and all that. I'm a little tough to wear a smile and boast in the midst of this kind of stuff, but Paul got it. He was at that place of maturity and grace in God where he recognized Weakness, pain, suffering. Oh, God, I know more of your grace is coming. I know your strength is coming, and I'll receive it. I'll allow and trust that through the pain, a conduit, a pathway is being opened up in my life whereby your power can enter, where your power can be made perfect. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. David was weak. He knew he couldn't handle all these battles, all these enemies, all this opposition. David could not handle his own sin and failure. He had to trust God. He had to cry out to God. God who forgives. God who strengthens. Isaiah 40, verse 31, the prophet writes, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I think before I move on to the last point, I just want to speak to the fact that sometimes we can be in a place where all of this, it's just so much, and the temptation is so strong to lean on that arm of the flesh to do what we know, either fixing it ourselves or going back and doing what soothes the pain but makes it worse. Ultimately, we're so desperate and the idea even of trusting and depending on God and having to wait for his deliverance, it's just too much. There's a discipline here that we have to grow into. What did, what did we read previously? God's not given us a spirit of fear but of love and power and of a sound mind. Do you know that's also rendered a spirit of discipline? God will give you, he's at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure, right? Sometimes it's a step of obedience. It's a painful step to choose to say, Lord, even in this place of darkness and pain where I can't see the answer, I'm having a hard time trusting and believing you, I'm going to choose to trust you. Remember, we, we spoke to that a little bit earlier. Now, sometimes we have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We have to choose God's truth over, over our experience, over our struggle, over what's in our heads and hearts and minds. We have to choose to wait on the Lord. Crying out to him, Lord, help me. I think with that father at the base of the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus came and his son was in a, such a desperate, terrible place and Jesus said to him, do you believe I'm able to do this? I can deliver and heal and help your son. And what did the man say? I believe, help my unbelief. We can talk to the Lord in that way. I think that's that mustard seed faith, faith that God's looking for. I believe God, but I don't believe. I want to trust you, but, but what's in front of me is so overwhelming. Help me. And when we pray in that way, God will marshal 
the resources of heaven on our behalf. Now lastly, in looking at verses 44 through 51, we find the God who delivers. Verse 44, you have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. The, the foreigners, they fade away. And the Gentiles, the non-Jews in the region, they fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up from those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So we've moved through this, this psalm with David, and we've considered how God forgives, hears, strengthens, and now delivers. This last theme and action of our God has been seen throughout. But it's especially focused on here at the end, and David closes, out with this, closes it out uh, in this way, in this reflective song of worship. Verse 44, you have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. Through all the messes, the problems on, on the path to the throne, God faithfully preserved and delivered David, subduing his enemies and causing him to rule not just over Israel, but even those Gentiles they'd fought against and defeated. Verse 47, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. The foundation and, and the substance of the deliverance that you and I so desperately need. David, he knew that his only hope was his rock, the tower of his salvation. It's he who'd shown him mercy. We'll close with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Maybe Pastor Frankie and the worship team you guys head up. We're going to share in communion this morning in a moment. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I love that last part of Ephesians chapter four because I, I think of all the things that we consider of what heaven is, what are we gonna be doing in heaven? What's that all about? What are those experiencing that we love that have gone before? Well, I think Ephesians chapter four verse seven gives us a little hint because some of us even after today's message, you're still holding on to the way you failed. You're still fixated on what God has forgotten, what's been washed under the blood of Jesus. I'm not saying we shouldn't take responsibility. I'm not saying we shouldn't own, repent, confess, 
Be diligent in, in seeking to walk in the light and all the healthy things that go with that. But in terms of our standing before God, we should have the same, might we call it, bold and even audacious confidence in the grace of God and in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Even the saint that has the strongest, deepest grasp on the grace of God, we're going to enter into eternity. <laughs> and for the ages to come, God is going to show us the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. None of us is going to get there and go, mm-hmm, that's right. That's right I'm here. Y'all been waiting for me, and uh, aren't you so lucky I finally showed up. The last piece of the puzzle, Lord, you can wipe your brow. Your heaven is now complete. It's not going to be that way. That's why the saints are throwing their crowns at his feet. Crowns, what are you talking about? I did only what was expected of me, and that was tainted with sin. Why am I even here? His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus.